This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, and I am the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Andreas Overmeyer, who is a professor at the University of Queensland in Australia. Uh, welcome, Andreas. Thank you very much, Pedro, for having me. So, Andreas, obviously, it's a, it's a great honor for me to speak with you, particularly on this uh, on this uh, study that is uh, very dear to both of us. Um, this is uh, the study that is published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, uh, titled "The Incidence of Adverse Events in Minimally Invasive Versus Open Radical Hysterectomy in Early Cervical Cancer: Results of a Randomized Controlled Trial." Um, this being basically the comparison of uh, perioperative uh, complications between the open and the minimally invasive arm of the LAC trial. So obviously lots of questions that we need to go over. And I wanted to start, Andreas, by asking you if you can give us the context uh, of this study in, in the literature uh, as it pertains to what it means and, and, uh, and what had been uh, previously published. I'd be delighted. So when when minimally invasive surgery really took off in the early 2000s, um, there were very few, um, there was very little high-level evidence available and very few prospective studies were available. Most evidence was gained from retrospective studies. And these retrospective studies really suggested that less invasive is better, is always better. Um, and so then slowly prospective studies emerged, mainly on endometrial cancer. Um, and like LAP2 uh, started even before 2000 and randomized a large number of women because it just, it just takes a long time. The LACE, the Australian LACE trial, uh, which I led, um, led to outcomes only in 2010, short-term outcomes. And so the original objective of, of the LAC trial was actually to demonstrate that less invasive is better, uh, is associated with better patient outcomes. That was our original hypothesis. And Andreas, when looking at the uh, LAC trial, and certainly I know that in the publication that we had on oncologic outcomes, there were some details to this, but specifically speaking about this one, about the adverse event study, um, would you share with the audience what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria for this study specifically? So for this study specifically, we included patients with uh, histologically confirmed invasive cancer of the cervix, um, SSC or adenocarcinoma, uh, stage 101 with LVSI or 102 or 1B1, where we would say that there is a consensus that many of these uh, women are best served with a radical hysterectomy. Uh, so the patients for this study had to have a radical hysterectomy of nodes, had to be well enough. Um, but we also should say that pregnant patients were not eligible. Uh, for this study, and um, Andreas, in the in the methodology, one of the um, one of the questions that might come up was the fact that um, the NCI common terminology criteria for adverse events, or the CTCAE, was used. Um, 
Can you tell us a little bit about the basic definition of this criteria and the reasons as to why uh, it was elected to use this criteria? Yeah, definitely. Like in oncological treatment, um, complications or adverse events are actually really common. Um, and I think uh, under underreported and underappreciated, if you like. Um, so while they're, uh, while they're very, very common, um, we were keen to report them comprehensively. And so we had a we had a few choices. There are obviously tools out there who object who objectively capture um, surgical adverse events, and you could think, well, this is a surgical trial. Why don't we use that? But it is while we're aiming to um, limit ourselves to just surgical treatment, a certain percentage of patients will go on to have chemoradiotherapy or chemoradiotherapy uh, uh, to say. And so we wanted to capture that as well. Uh, and the CTC is, is, a, is basically an ideal tool to capture and create adverse events or actually any abnormal findings from treatment that patients received. And that's why we decided, pardon me, <coughs> on the CTC as a tool um, rather than a purely surgical um, tool to capture adverse events. And if you can just give us some details as to also why um, adverse events were not reported for all patients, but rather just 536 of the total 631 patients that were enrolled in the study. So for the aim of this analysis, um, we had the information of 536 patients available. Um, so there were 100 patients where certain information was not available. For example, uh, in 58 patients, 58 patients did not have surgery. So these patients withdrew or surgery was abandoned. Uh, from 37 patients, we had missing data, which is unfortunate, but, uh, but kind of normal in, in a study of, of this large scale. Um, a couple of patients had incomplete data at follow-up, um, and um, and and some more patients had then incomplete data at six months. Um, so that's that's why that's why um, we're missing data of about hundred patients. And now on to the main findings. What were the main findings of the adverse events comparison between open and minimally invasive for the LAC trial? So the main findings I would like to group into maybe three outcomes. One were the perioperative outcomes. The mean duration of surgery was 30 minutes longer for minimally invasive. The estimated blood loss was 100 mils less for minimally invasive. And the length of stay was also less for minimally invasive versus open uh, cases. And that was all expected. The incidence of interoperative complications was similar between minimally invasive and open. And again, this was not a surprise. In regards to postoperative adverse events, there was overall no difference between 
minimally invasive surgery and open surgery. And that was a bit of a surprise. There were specific complications of interest, such as wound complications, where there was a difference. For example, wound complications, the incidence was 1.4% uh, in minimally invasive and 6% in open. Like that is expected. Um, the general world complications uh, were um, more or are more common in minimally invasive, uh, 4% versus 0.8%. Um, and there was, and cardiac complications were more common in open surgery, 0.7% um, in minimally invasive and 4% uh, in open surgery. But virtually all other complications were very, the incidence was very similar uh, between between the group. And Andreas, you know, certainly when one looks at at, uh, at the graphs and the, and the study, some might argue that a rate of 56% adverse events is, is quite large. Now, noting the differences obviously in grading, would you please uh, explain as to why this might be the case? Um, Yes, of course. So, Pedro, when you look at when you look at the retrospective studies that I alluded to, um, and keep in mind this study was really sort of the only prospective uh, study that's been done until that time, like that was adequately powered and so forth. Um, but the study so far really um, captured their data only until about four weeks or six weeks maybe. Um, also, retrospective studies that were reported until then re would have reported certain key or very important uh, complications, but not, um, not just abnormal findings. Um, for example, I give you an example, like cardiac complications, right? Like in a in a retrospective study, no one would record arrhythmia or hypertension or postural hypertension or something like that, because you would really need to dig deep to find this in a medical record if you would do um, a chart analysis. Um, maybe in some records it wouldn't even be recorded because it's deemed not important. But what we did, uh, and by using the common toxicity criteria, we basically recorded all abnormal findings, regardless of whether they were related to the study intervention or not. Uh, and we also recorded outcomes up to six months after, after surgery. So that also includes all the adverse events associated with radiation treatment uh, or chemotherapy. So you can very easily see that at the first at first sight, 56% looks great. But then when you look a little bit deeper, what you can see that we actually captured a far more comprehensive picture uh, of what's really happening with patients uh, and not just a retrospective chart review uh, limited to a follow-up period of four to six weeks. 
Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, and um, Andreas, of course, obviously, one of the questions that has come up and, and often comes up, although obviously the study was not designed for that for that comparison, but uh, the tendency is always to compare robotics versus uh, the laparoscopic approach in terms of the minimally invasive outcomes. And uh, in this study, the rate of adverse events was for, uh, 71% for patients undergoing robotic surgery versus 57% for patients undergoing laparoscopic surgery. Um, were these uh, really statistically significantly different? And, and do you have any uh, information as to the rate of severe adverse events in these groups? I would, Pedro, I would be very, very careful interpreting things here uh, because, as you rightly say, the study wasn't part to look at it. And, uh, you know, that may have been a weakness of the study, but we just really didn't envisage that. Um, so we did some post hoc analysis of laparoscopic uh, and robotic uh, surgery. Um, and where appropriate, these numbers have been reported in the paper uh, and they were very similar. Uh, but I would really like to avoid um, going out on a limb here and, and speculate uh, because the evidence that we we captured here, I don't consider uh, reliable and strong enough to draw a conclusion. This study was not a study that would allow us to get a picture of uh, sticks versus robots. Uh, it really wasn't designed to do that. And then as, as a follow-up to that, you know, certainly one should highlight that even though there were no global adverse uh, event differences between the group, you know, obviously, certainly the, the, the question frequently comes up is, you know, uh, you, you can't uh, tell me that there were no differences in, in wound complications or, or vaginal dehiscences between the groups. Um, tell us specifically about the, the complication as it pertains to wound and as it pertains to vaginal vault complications in this study. Yeah, so the expectedly, uh, the rate of wound complications um, correlated with a degree of obesity. Um, so that is a very strong and very clear signal uh, that the study has shown. Um, however, we need to be aware that the median BMI of our sample was 26 to 27. Um, so overall, the incidence of wound complications was low, which is different to endometrial cancer. Um, the rate of vaginal vault complications, 4% versus 0.8%, is an interesting one because there is some speculation uh, that um, that excessive use of diathermy on the vaginal vault um, could lead to devascularization of the vaginal vault and lead to complications. Um, so I can only I can only speculate that uh, that might have been the case here as well, um, and um, and uh, I would I would maybe recommend that um, surgeons surgeons review uh, their surgical technique um, when they review their rate of vaginal vault complications. And, and Andres, uh, you, you had mentioned previously uh, that there was a recording, of course, of, of cardiac complications, and you noted there was a difference in the rate of cardiac complications, 0.7% in the minimally invasive group and, and 4% in the open group. 
And I know this is just speculation, but do, do you have any theory as to why this might be the case? Or do you think this is just a, a by chance finding? Pedro, I have no explanation for this. Um, uh, we we mulled over this uh, with the statisticians and we were trying to find explanations. Um, I have no explanation for this. Uh, this may well be an artifact. Yeah. And then uh, also you mentioned BMI and um, that there was an association with increased BMI and an increased risk of any grade uh, two plus adverse event. Um, you know, certainly w w was there a difference between the, the groups in this respect? Yes, Pedro. So this is, this is really interesting um, because it has implications for, for the development of future trials and, and development of future surgical treatments. Um, and the finding was that obesity really increased the risk of all complications in both groups. Um, so, which is, which is remarkable because while wound complications were obviously related to obesity, all kind of different complications overall relate to obesity. And obesity was in fact the only predictive factor of adverse events. And this is very similar to what we've shown previously um, in, um, in a subgroup analysis in the last trial uh, that obviously is on endometrial cancer where obesity is far more prevalent. Um, so what we have shown here in other words was that the impact of obesity on the risk of developing complications was stronger than the impact of treatment. And with, within each obesity group or BMI group, the risk of developing complications was very consistent. So that is, that is um, important to know because while we believe that minimally invasive um, is, is preferable for obese or super obese patients, these women also run the risk of other complications as well. And these women are at generally at a much higher risk of developing complications. So what I'm saying is we really need to review um, whether our offering um, to obese patients is actually adequate and, and good enough. And, and Andreas, one, one thing that has come up with the um, Oncologic Outcomes um, manuscript as well is this issue of, you know, certainly whether there is a higher rate of complications at certain sites. In other words, uh, was there a particular center or centers where the rate of complications was much higher than other centers? Better we specifically looked at that uh, and we did not find that certain sites were significantly better or worse than others in regards to, uh, to complications. It would be just so easy if that would be the case because then we could say, well, we got a we got a volume issue. We got a we got a quality issue, uh, which would all be preventable and predictable. And but unfortunately, that was not the case. Um, and we actually dedicated um, in the paper. We dedicated a specific paragraph to that issue. And and I think you know certainly. Uh, and I think you alluded to to some of this earlier. You you speak of several retrospective studies that evaluated.
perioperative complications between open and minimally invasive surgery. Uh, and then the question that naturally comes up is, why does the LAC trial show us something different than what we had seen with retrospective studies? Pedro, as, as, um, as we have learned from this study on complications, um, is that there are massive bias involved uh, in retrospective studies. Some of these bias can be addressed um, and others are just uh, inherent and basically cannot be addressed. Um, so for example, the data selection of patients is for example, one, one of these bias. Um, in retrospective studies, we cannot completely address the, the selection bias. It's, it's virtually impossible. Sometimes we know about it, but we may not or hardly ever are able to quantify it and allow for it. Uh, or the, the bias of collecting data. So while I really believe that there is a point of retrospective studies to generate hypotheses uh, we got to be extremely careful uh, interpreting retrospective studies in terms of effectiveness of treatments and, and safety, of, safety of treatments uh, because of the bias issue. And Andreas, you, you make an interesting observation uh, between the results of the LAC trial and those of the GOG Lab 2 study on endometrial cancer as it pertains to adverse events. Uh, can you expand on that and, and share that with us? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, many of, uh, many of your listeners would know the LAP2 trial. Um, so this was a, a large, uh, prospective RCT on endometrial cancer. Um, it enrolled a couple of thousand uh, women, but all patients had to have a lymph node dissection. Um, so there were some differences between LAP2 and, and LAC, um, but there are not too many surgically randomized trials that we could, we could borrow from. So LAP2 is a good one, but we need to know what the limitations are. So one of, one of the limitations is that patients, all patients with LAP2 had to have had a lymph node dissection. But on the other hand, patients did not need to have a radical hysterectomy, but most patients would have only had a pilot type 1 hysterectomy. In lab two, the incidence of adverse events at six weeks, this is where it was measured, uh, was 17%. And lab two used the same tool, the common toxicity criteria, the CTC, as we did. And so in lab two, the adverse events at six weeks was 17%. And how would that compare to our 56%? Well, if in LAC, we would cut our observation period off at six weeks, we'd be arriving at 18% as well. Uh, so you can see that the incidence of adverse events is, was strikingly similar in LAC and LAP2, which was helpful to, uh, to know because initially we did think that 56%, well, how do we justify that? we had a quality issue. And I think the comparison with lab two shows that I don't think we have a quality issue. I think if we just uh, capture adverse events comprehensive enough and long enough, then we get a much bigger and much more reliable picture uh, of adverse events and how it affects patients. So Andreas, obviously uh, level one evidence, prospective randomized trial, 
very valuable information. Uh, what are the limitations of this study, though? Um, I don't think there are many limitations. Um, um, I guess one of the things that we talked about before was um, robotic versus laparoscopic surgery. Um, we, in LAC, we did not stratify for laparoscopic and robotic. Um, so in the whole study, there were only 46 patients who had robotic treatment, um, and that was one patient in the open arm and 45 patients um, in the minimally invasive arm, and those were 16%. So 16% of women uh, in the minimally invasive arm had robotic surgery. Um, and I don't think that allows us to draw conclusions um, on on that issue. I realize it's, it's an issue that has become important uh, because certainly in the United States and also in Europe, the, the robot um, is... Um, Maybe more people work with the robot than with sticks, um, but so we certainly are unable to offer conclusive and high-level evidence on that issue. I see that as maybe one of the greatest limitations of this study. And then, Andreas, how do you foresee this study moving forward, changing clinical practice? So, Pedro, one of the things that we acknowledge is that that we need to acknowledge is that this study already has changed clinical practice. Um, a recent publication suggested that 60% of gynecological oncologists in the US and Europe already changed clinical practice. But I ho also hope that this paper will stimulate the thought process. For example, I would like to see that subsequent trials should consider adverse events as an outcome. And if the incidence of adverse events uh, is similar between the two treatment groups, the investigators should review that and should review if it's still justified to complete uh, the trial and enroll more patients into it. There is uh, one trial in particular uh, that um, is uh, coming from Sweden at the moment, and, and, uh, and I congratulate uh, the investigators uh, for pulling this off. I think this is this is very laudable. Uh, but for example, if if new trials find no difference in adverse events in the incidence of adverse events after enrolling, let's say, three or four hundred patients, then I think they need to review if it is ethically justifiable to enrolling another 400 patients and exposing them to the risks. Because in non-inferiority trials, if we are saying our hypothesis is that the survival is the same, we've got to have a benefit. And we always thought that, uh, that a lower incidence of adverse event and less complications is the benefits that we get from minimal invasive surgery. And certainly in this trial, which, as you say, is level one evidence, that did not eventuate. So I would suggest that I would hope that uh, future investigators are designed by phasic trials where they have the first phase that 
that would look at um, adverse events and maybe quality of life. And only if that passes, then moves on, uh, moves on to um, to the survival uh, endpoint. So, Andreas, obviously, this has been quite a journey, uh, actually, for obviously both of us and, and many in, in our in our team. I would ask you, what what have you learned from all of this? Oh, Pedro, so much, but um, <laughs> but. I think if you really consider where we came from in 2007 when, when we designed this trial, it has the biggest thing that the LAC trial has shown me is how dangerous, how dangerous it is not to do surgical trials. Um, just to give you an example, Australia is the country I love and I support. And Australia is a small, we're a small country. But we spend close to a billion dollar every year on medical research. But the success rate of grant applications involving surgery is 3%. Like this is incredibly low compared to 30% if we would do studies on genetics or 29% in biostatistics. In Australia last year, only one study was funded that we could call surgical in 2019. This is simply insane. As surgeons, we need to discuss publicly how risky it is not to do surgical research. And the LAC trial is the example that could be used as a demonstrator case how critically important it is to do surgical trial. And so this is the one thing that I learned. Uh, maybe to say, well, Guys, we have demonstrated that the electoral has shown us so much that we did not know before. How many other uh, learning points and secrets um, are to, there to be unearthed? Well, I completely agree, Andreas, and certainly we should continue to Uh, advocate for additional funding in uh, in research and surgical trials. Um, we'd love to continue speaking with you. Obviously, our time is limited. Is there anything else you would like to say? Well, yes, Pedro. Let me just uh, let me just on behalf of the investigators, and that includes you. I would like to thank our colleagues uh, worldwide, globally. So the. This trial would have not been possible without the input uh, from investigators from 33 sites and from 14 countries all over the world in Europe and the United States and South America and Asia to assist conducting this important research. Uh, and I would really like to thank all of these people um, that they put so much effort into this. Um, uh, and, uh, and I would like to thank the team of investigators um, that operated from, from two continents. Um, so thank you very much to all of these people. Uh, and thank you also, Pedro, for having me uh, on this podcast and for the opportunity to talk about this uh, important paper. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Andres. And uh, also, again, I want to thank you for all of the contributions you have made and continue to make to the field of uh, gynecologic oncology. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pedro.